Welcome to the Career Guy Podcast, a chance to talk with different people and share stories about their careers and career paths, giving you an insightful look at different careers that do exist. Here's your host, Mickey Horvath. This is part two of a three-part interview with Chris Wilson, snowboard instructor, hardware associate, helicopter pilot, aircraft maintenance engineer, author, business owner, and entrepreneur. This segment starts with Chris regrouping and figuring out his next step. In doing so, he talks about how he got himself out of debt and realized that he still wanted to stay in aviation, which led to the discovery of becoming an aircraft maintenance engineer. While this interview caters to someone who may be interested in the aviation field, or more specifically becoming an aircraft maintenance engineer, it will also appeal to anyone interested in career development, as there are many tips and advice throughout this interview on what to think about in picking and developing a career. This is an educational, informative, and inspiring interview. And with that, I would like to continue the story with Chris. Okay, well, first of all, I just want to talk about this. You're only 19. Sure, we look back, we're going to say, well, geez, I was only 19 years old at the time. I wasn't even that old. But at the time when you're 19 and you move out of your parents' house, we're, we're all ecstatic. We're, we've got freedom and, you know, we got that little swagger and a little in our walk and whatnot. We're pretty proud of ourselves. But to go back to your parents at 19, at that age, when you've got that swagger and saying, you know, it's not working. Oh no, what do I do? And you did that. So it's, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow, but I, the message I'm trying, I'm trying to throw out here before we get into your story is just like, it's okay to do that. Most parents will take you back. And I, I don't think your parents made you feel guilty or anything like that. I'm, I'm just assuming that and you're shaking your head. No. So when you went back to Toronto and, or just in Ontario and you're 19 years old and you've got all this debt, you're back in your parents' house. So what's going through your head at that time? So that was a very difficult, very challenging time as well. And what I ended up having to do is I made a deal with my parents or maybe they made a deal with me actually, where I could live rent free. I could save up as much money as possible and I could figure out what I was going to do next. So again, that target, that vision of aviation, of helicopters was still there. I never lost sight of that. That passion, that fire was always there. And that's what you need to have. I was never really sidetracked off of that vision, even though life was sidetracking me in all these different areas. I still had that in my mind. So what I needed to do was is work and, and make some money. So I had to go back to the hardware store where I was working in high school and this was a really difficult decision because now I'm getting asked all these questions from my coworkers. Oh, Chris, you were out in BC doing this, getting your license, all that. And I had to explain so many different times why it didn't work, what was happening. And that was just, I don't know if frustrating is the word, but just challenging again that I don't want to have these conversations. I don't want to have keep having to tell people why it didn't work, why I failed, why I was back here working at my high school job, because literally that was the option. So I was saving money up for that next year. I was paying off some debt and I was just chipping away at, at it. Obviously, it was a, a huge amount. And the money I was making back then in terms of that job was not very much minimum wage. So it was barely anything. But I was saving and I was figuring out, okay, 
what can I do next? What's the next thing? So what I like to say is I, I went back to the drawing board. I started brainstorming. I started researching and to get ideas of, okay, flying isn't working out. I can't seem to get a job, even though I'm open to any opportunity in Canada. What else can I do in order to get my foot in the door? What else can I do to get in the industry so I can stop struggling? I can stop doing any of this any of this stuff, which is basically nothing. And what I came across next was very interesting. And that was doing maintenance. So I found this course to become an AME or aircraft maintenance engineer, as they're referred to in Canada. And that was basically a mechanic. That was a maintenance technician on basically aircraft. So not necessarily helicopter specific, but on planes or helicopters. But I wanted to specialize in helicopters because that's what I knew how to fly. So that was the niche, so to speak, that I wanted to focus on. So I started looking at different ways, different outlets that I could make this happen, that I could actually go into maintenance, what was required, what was the financial, basically things that I needed to figure out in terms of that, the time commitments to now get in the industry. And then I could transfer to flying or figure out how I could fly once I was in there. The word that comes to my mind is just regroup. You just took a timeout. What's coming to my mind is like a hockey game or a football game where the coach calls timeout. Look, we got to regroup here. And that's exactly what you ended up doing. You just regrouped and you thought to yourself, okay, what else can I do here? How can I get back into aviation or how can I get my foot in the door? So obviously you looked at it and you said, okay, well, if I approach it from this angle, which is aircraft maintenance. So when you're thinking about this, what are you looking at? I'm looking at what other opportunities I can do to get in aviation. And there's not that many opportunities. There's not that many really jobs in aviation in terms of especially helicopters being very specific and very niche. So that was the option I was looking at. So I looked into the school. It was a four-year program, a year and a half in school, two and a half year working apprenticeship paid for companies. And that was the investment. I think the Total investment for the year and a half at that time was approximately 15,000 Canadian. So not very much money in terms of what we're talking about for a year and a half of schooling. And that was straight start to finish. There was no gaps. There was no summer breaks. So I like that idea behind it is, okay, I can start this. I can do full 18 months or 16 months, I think it was, straight, basically get that certification for schooling. And then I can start working in the industry with that apprenticeship and I can start making money to continue to pay off the debt, to continue to learn, to continue to grow my experience. And then I will have a lot more in with the industry because now I'm doing maintenance. So that's exactly what I did. And again, I targeted BC. I targeted Vancouver. So the school I ended up cho choosing for that was BCIT, British Columbia Institute of Technology. And they had a separate campus for that, which is called their Richmond or Aerospace Campus, which is located in Richmond, BC. And again, I targeted that school in that area because of location, because of the freedom, because I was on my own. And it was just something new and exciting. I could meet more people and I could be in a place that I wanted to live. I had been exposed to Vancouver for a year or so at that time before I moved back with my parents. And I liked it and I wanted more of that. So I focused on getting in there. I enrolled. I got accepted. And I transitioned to maintenance in order of my pursuits to fly at a future date. A couple of things. Well, first of all, I got to admire you. You you took a time out and you said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And you're willing to go back to BC, 
where a lot of people might say, okay, I'm going to just stay in Ontario because I'm sure there's somewhere in Ontario or even Quebec or even Manitoba or any other provinces, you could take the same type of program, but you went back out to BC because you obviously liked it out there and you wanted adventure still. So you went back out there. As far as the program is concerned, again, somebody who's listening to this that's interested in, in this avenue, what kind of prerequisites do you need to get into this type of program? So this program, there was 100% prerequisites, and I can't remember exactly the prerequisites, but I remember you had to have high school diploma and you had to pass certain exams or certain tests. So there was, I believe, three different tests, a math test, an English test, and some sort of mechanical workings test. So I believe there was three exams that you needed to pass, and there was also a passing percentage. I want to say it was 70% as well before they'd enroll you. So once you did that, once you could sign up for the course and get access to that, then they would accept you and you could start into the course. From there, it was, like I said prior, 18 months straight of schooling. And this was full on. This was go in at eight, leave at five or whatever the times were. And it was a lot of theory and then a lot of practical. So almost kind of like the flying is you were in class, you were learning about how the workings of this flying machine works. And it wasn't just helicopters, but it was planes, helicopters, any flying machines in general. So it was very general. And then also they have a massive hangar there where they have different aircraft. They have small fixed wing planes. They have jets. They have a 737. They have helicopters. They have all these different things that you can actually work on that are not serviceable. So they've actually been taken out of service for whatever reason, but they're there specifically to work on and to be practical experience for you to actually get your hands on, see how things work, see how things look, and actually do the work for those pre-required tasks for that program. I just want to talk about the program a little bit more, and let's get into a little bit more detail if we can, again, for somebody who's listening, who's interested in this. So you said it's about, it was about 18 months, then after that, you walk out as an apprentice. Before we get into that, let's just talk about the program itself, the 18 months. So is the 18 month program, it's intense. You show up at eight o'clock in the morning, you go to five o'clock in the afternoon. I'm assuming half and half between theory and shop time. Is it based on semesters as well? How many courses do you take? And again, how are things divided up? If you can just give us a picture of that. So how that course is divided up is on levels, I believe they're called. So I can't remember exactly how many levels there are, but I think it's somewhere around nine levels. So each level focuses on a different aspect of aviation. So one level might be electronics. Another level might be propellers. Another level might be helicopters and so on and so forth. So as you go through these levels, you're just focusing on these skills with that group, with that class. And you progress with the same class through these different levels and you have to pass certain tests, certain exams, whether theory or practical for that specific level to make sure that you're competent in achieving those skills. And then once you have all the levels completed to that satisfactory percentage, which I think was 70% typical Transport Canada number, then you can go on and do these final exams where that gives you basically the certification. So I think I graduated with a diploma of technical studies, which is what you get out of the course for an AME. So this program itself, and I would, I would assume that if it's in Ontario or any province, it is being regulated by a national board, is that right? So when you're coming out, you're at a certain level. 
Yeah. So basically how it works with aviation is Transport Canada is a federally regulated governing body. So what that means is they regulate all of those laws and regulations over Canada. So no matter what the provinces are, it doesn't matter. Transport Canada is the governing body. And that's the same with this school. So for aircraft maintenance, they are the regulating body that all the tests have to meet up to, that all the practical tests and exams have to meet that standard, which is similar to flying the same body, but just in a different way for that specific school. Okay, you finished everything, you graduated, you graduated with a diploma of technical studies. So just before we get into the rest of your career, just to recap anything about the program that you would like to pass on that anybody who's listening, who might be interested in pursuing this avenue, what would you like to pass on to them? The main thing I think I would like to pass on with this avenue is it seemed like a lot of people that were in my class, I think they were smaller group sizes, maybe 16, I think comes to mind, 17 people per class. But a lot of the people just jumped into this with no idea of what it was, no idea of anything to do with what they were getting into. And I would say probably an accurate number would be 80% of people didn't do anything with the career further. And I know this is fairly typical with most people pursuing post-secondary education, college, university, but this course is very specialized. It's very specific. And if you do a bit of homework, you do a bit of research, you will know what it entails because it's so specific. It's not as general or as vague as some other degrees or diplomas that you might get. So do your research going in, know what you're getting into in terms of future jobs, in terms of future careers and pay and what's expected of you, because it is very detailed on what you're getting into with aircraft maintenance. But so many people in my class never even worked on any sort of aircraft or part ever again. Let's just talk about this for a minute more. How big were the classes? And did you find a lot of people just coming from high school? And you you did allude to the fact that nobody really understood what they were getting themselves into. Well, let's just elaborate on that. Yeah, so I think the class sizes were about 16 to 17, as I said, around that number. It definitely wasn't higher than 20, so they were fairly small. There was a lot of international students, so a lot of people trying to get residency or trying to get into Canada, a lot of international students. There were definitely some local students from the Vancouver area, straight out of high school, like you said, just jumped into the course. And then there was kind of another group of people that were involved in aviation in one way, shape, or form, whether it was flying like I did, or they had a background in maintenance in terms of helicopters or planes, but didn't have the certification. So there was kind of like three different groups. And I would say the biggest group of all was probably international students, at least at the location and school that I went to. Okay, fair enough. I like the way you also pointed that out. And I like to emphasize that though too is, and it, it can be misleading. A program like this, and even with your helicopter license, it's very specific. You're really stressing. It's really tailored to a very niche, small industry. So when somebody's picking a career, you need to think about that as well. Is If you get into something like that, when you're looking for a specific niche, a very specific industry, it can be harder to get in. But once you get in, it can be rewarding, but it's just tougher to get in. There's higher barrier walls, I guess you could say. So with that, you graduated with your diploma, but you still need to apprentice. So what's happening then? So this is when things started to kind of go my way. Things were starting to work out. So I, I did my best in the program. I graduated with distinction over 91% average and everything. So I really applied myself. 
And that's what I wanted to do with this. I wanted to dive in headfirst and immerse myself in the best that I could do to get hired, to get a job, to go on. So I had this one teacher, I, I forget his name, sorry to this teacher, but he ended up giving me a business card of a company while I was in school. So he liked me, I liked him, I did good work for him in terms of the class and I was a very good student. So he said, hey, Chris, here's a card of my buddy that works at so-and-so helicopter company. Give him a call and see what he says. So I gave this guy a call, which was now a referral from this teacher. And instantly I got a job. I had a job actually straight out of school because of that interaction, because of that business card. And the main reason why is because I applied myself, because I showed up, because I was someone that was easygoing and likable and easy to get along with in that class. And I listened. So because I portrayed these qualities in school, because I did these things, that was the first connection. And immediately I was working for a company out of school. And not only that is I was actually getting to fly a bit of the helicopter in this company as well. It was a very small company based out of Pitt Meadows. And it was super small, super niche, like you're saying, but now I was getting a bit of flight time. I was getting some maintenance. So things started to work out right out of school for me. But again, this was now three and a half years, four years later from me initially getting my helicopter pilot's license. So it wasn't like things were sunshine and rainbows and, and working out immediately. It took a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort. But now I was starting to see some of these gains where it's like, okay, now I'm getting in the industry. This is where I want to be moving forward. It's interesting. Again, I'm going to highlight a couple of things. And uh, the fact that you went back to Ontario, you took a break and you thought about things. And it's because of that you were you were intense. You, you knew your intent. You knew what you wanted to do. So you were engaged when you went back to school. That's one thing that I like to point out. And just to reiterate this point, and when you said you were likable and you were easy to get along with, and with all the interviews I've done, that seems to be one trait that seems to come up with everybody that I've talked to so far is become likable, become easygoing, get along with people because the better you get along with people, it's just going to work in your favor at the end. And at the same time though, too, you sounds like you, you set yourself to some pretty high standards and you adhere to them. And somebody saw that and it's because of that you got a business card and you got to leap into a good job. So you're working at this one company, you're getting a bit of flying time, you're working on your apprentice. So let's just talk about that a little bit though, too. How does your apprenticeship work? How does that look like? If you could explain that to people as well. Yeah. So as far as the apprenticeship for an aircraft maintenance engineer in Canada, again, it's going to be slightly different for other countries, United States and further, is you have a logbook. So that logbook has chapters or certain ATA chapters, which are different sections or different things on the helicopter or on planes. And then within these sections are tasks. So at the end of your apprenticeship, which has to be two and a half years in terms of time, you need to fulfill, I believe it's at least 65 or 70% of these tasks. So that means, let's say you need to change the oil in a filter on a helicopter. So you'd fill out that task. You need to balance a tail rotor. You fill out that task. There's all these different things that you need to fill out in the logbook, but they also have to get certified from the AME. So from the aircraft maintenance engineer that's certified, that's licensed, he or she needs to sign off. So, okay, we did this task and you need to be competent at that task. So just because you did that task once 
you still may not be competent. You may need to do it two, three, four times. Okay, now you can do it on your own. Then they'll certify that task. So that's kind of the main thing is the logbook, but you still have to fulfill the two and a half years in order to do that logbook and to have everything filled out in it. So let me be clear about this, that two and a half years, is that the maximum timeline you have to fill out this logbook or can you extend that? You can extend that. And what happens is, I don't want to say more often than not, but sometimes someone will have that two and a half years and they'll only have 50% of things filled out or they'll only have 30% of things filled out. And that's pretty typical if you work only at one place, because at that one place, they might work on airplanes or they might work on flow planes where they're doing very specific tasks day in and day out. And you actually can't fill out those other tasks because they don't even do that work. So that's where the benefit of working at multiple companies over the course of that two and a half years will actually benefit you or a more diverse company that's doing all of these things. But you can for sure go beyond that. I don't believe there's actually a time limit on when you can end it. You can go on three years, three and a half years, but at the same time, you want to be done in two and a half years because that is a long period of time where you can fulfill all of these tasks. So in your case, did you move on to other companies or did you stay at this company? Yeah, so I moved on to a lot of companies and I don't know the exact number from my apprenticeship, but I want to say I worked at four or five different companies for my apprenticeship. And that was not by choice. That was due to circumstance. And the reason for this is I learned very early on is aviation is like a roller coaster. There's ups and downs and ups and downs, and that's due to time of year. So summer is a very busy time of year. Summer's when aircraft are flying, helicopters are flying, they're making money, they're doing good. Winter is more of a slow time where things are relaxed. They come into the hangar, you do heavier maintenance, they lay off a bunch of people, they run leaner to save money. So I started to see very early on this roller coaster ride firsthand of me having a job or it being a contract and then getting laid off or just fulfilling that contract, moving on to somewhere else, fulfilling that job or contract, getting laid off, moving on to somewhere else. So firsthandedly, I was moving on to all these different companies and it was challenging because I didn't know, you know where I was going to get this next paycheck from when I got laid off, unfortunately. But the golden thing and the golden opportunity behind this that actually served me for, throughout my the rest of my career was I was getting knowledge and expertise from this company that I liked and I was taking. I was getting different knowledge and expertise from this company that I took with me. So I could actually see into all these different companies of how they were doing things, how they were doing things differently or how they were doing things similarly and I could take all that feedback into my own knowledge, my own expertise, my own troubleshooting skills. And that's what really grew my career and my knowledge and expertise very fast because I was so immersed in all these different companies. And I was also working insane hours at these companies too. So there's no shortage of work when I was working. So a couple of things are coming to my mind is when you're filling out your logbook, as that builds up, does your wage actually increase as well? Or can you expect it to increase? So as you're an apprentice, typically, and this is where aviation gets kind of interesting, at least in helicopters, pay ranges are all over the place. You could be making a certain amount at one place and another place you could be making way more or way less. It really depends. But typically, as an apprentice, 
you will make that wage that they offer you, whether it's 18 bucks an hour, 20 bucks an hour, 22 bucks an hour, or so on. And that's just what you make for your apprenticeship. Then once you get licensed, you have more pull to get more money. But my biggest piece of advice here for anyone listening that's in this industry is once you get licensed, once you get a bit of experience, you get some endorsements, which is more training around a specific helicopter or engine, you need to move on. You need to go to other companies because that's the only way you're going to make more money. I've seen so many people do their whole apprenticeships, two and a half years, become an aircraft maintenance engineer and continue three, four, five, six, seven, ten 10 years with that company. And I would go to different companies and I'm making double what they're making. I'm making 2.5, three times what these people are making because they don't have the negotiating power. Because when you're making $20 an hour as an apprentice, they're not going to say, hey, we'll pay you $40, $45 an hour as an AME because they're already paying you 20. They're going to offer you 25. So that's a very dangerous spot that you do not want to be in. So let me see if I understand this correctly. You're already working in a very niche, very specific industry. And by staying within one company, you're even narrowing that focus even that much more. So what you're suggesting, if I understand everything correctly, is if you at least jump around to different companies and get yourself a variety of experiences if you can. And by that way, you hold your value a little bit more so. Am I reading that right? Yeah, you're definitely reading that right. What I would also add to that is you may not want to jump around as an apprentice because you don't have that experience, because it's a competitive industry, you're going to want to stay with that company to try and fulfill that logbook and get licensed. The license is the main thing. So you want to fulfill that. You want to pass your exams. But then once you have the license, you have an endorsement, which we can talk about what that is in a little bit. Now you start to have some power because you can sign out aircraft. You can certify your work. You can certify an inspection or changing out a part. Now you're starting to get leverage of moving companies and making more money. So I'd say once you get licensed, you get some experience in terms of a couple endorsements to sign out certain helicopters. Now is when you can start to leverage those abilities of moving on. Okay, let's go back and let's just talk about the licensing for a minute. So you fill out your logbook, let's say you do it in two and a half years, then you still have to challenge an exam. Would I be right about that or? Yes, and I believe it's just one exam, but it, it could be two exams or three exams. I can't remember off the top of my head, but you would challenge that exam, pass that exam. And then once all of those things are fulfilled, now you're certified as an aircraft maintenance engineer. So now you're certified. Now you can actually, and what you're recommending is get that license. If you can stay within one company just to get that license, because I'm always thinking though too, it's more than just showing up to work. You really want that company to support you. You want that company to fill out your logbook with you as well, because somebody has to sign off on this well, as, as you indicated a few minutes ago. So you want their cooperation. You, you just you just don't want to just show up at a company and just work and never get that thing filled out. I, I imagine other people would probably have that problem where they're not getting that cooperation. Would, would I be right about that? Or? Yeah, I'm not so sure it's about the cooperation. I mean, you definitely want to get along with the people that are licensed with them. You want to become friends. You want to become buddies. And you want to make sure you're working hard and diligently because once you do that, they will help you, like you're saying, with in terms of filling out that logbook, signing off that logbook. So that is key. But I'd say the other side of it is 
is the company you're working for might not do all of the tasks or might not do a variety of the tasks, which is actually what's going to hold most people back is because they're so specialized on doing this type of maintenance or fixing these engines or these specific types of aircraft that literally they just don't do those tasks and you can't get signed off on them. That's going to be the trouble in that situation. So this is all taking place in BC still. Are you living in the Vancouver area or are you working outside a camp or how does this actually all look like? So when I was going to school at BCIT, I was living in Richmond, close to school, transiting there. And then as I got that first job, I was still living in Richmond. And then from there, I transitioned to a few different jobs. My hub was always Vancouver. So I lived in a few different locations, even in Vancouver and other places. But that was always my hub. And I was working from the hub, whether it's driving to different airports. So I've worked at I want to say almost all the airports around here. I've worked at YVR. I've worked in Pitt Meadows, Langley, Abbotsford, pretty much all the airports where anything's happening, I've worked out of. And that's through commuting, that's through driving. And I've also worked all over Western Canada. So even when I was an apprentice, I would fly to Alberta, I'd fly to Calgary, I'd fly to Edmonton, I was in Prince George, I was in Northern Sites. And when you work with helicopters, you need to be very open to working remotely, to working where they work because helicopters are designed for remote work. They work in the mountains. They work in very deep trees in these deep camps in the middle of nowhere. So I was already traveling a lot, but my home base, luckily for me, not the case for everyone, but luckily for me, was in the lower mainland in Vancouver, basically exclusively. So I'm just going to put it out there. It's not a job where you actually work nine to five or eight to four or whatnot. I'm assuming you're working in, in, when you say remote areas, that you're actually flying out to these remote areas. There's a camp, I'm assuming, whether it's aqua trailers or RVs or whatnot, you're living out there. And um, is, it, is it two weeks on, two weeks off? How, do, how does it actually work? So when you're gaining experience, like when I was an apprentice, for example, <clears throat> the schedule was you work until they tell you to go home and then you come back when they tell you to come out. So I remember I've done 47 day shifts. I've done three weeks on, I've done four weeks on, I've had five days off, I've had three days off and it's just constant work, 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 drive and grind. And the unfortunate part is for me with little experience, I was adamant. I was yes, yes, yes. I was open to the opportunities. I was open to working to gain that experience, to gain that knowledge, those skills, those problem-solving skills. So there was no real schedule. Some of them would say, oh yeah, you go to the field for three weeks and you have a week off. But typically it is completely random. It's very, very random. There's so much going on. There's fires, metaphorically speaking, you're putting out all day and night long in different situations. And the thing with helicopters is they need to be operational all the time. So if something happens, if a light comes on, if an issue comes on that the pilot notices or someone else notices, and it's on-site working, that needs to get fixed right now because if it's not flying, it's not making money. And they need to be making money in the summer because that's kind of the sweet spot where they're pulling on all their revenue for the whole year to survive the winter, to survive the rest of the time. So the schedule was not a schedule early on. So it was challenging. It was difficult. It was exhausting. Burnout, I'd say, is a good word. And it wasn't until I really started gaining momentum eight years into my career. I'd say eight years probably actually is the number 
where I started to get a better schedule. I started to start saying no to my boss, to the companies. And because I had so much experience, so many endorsements, so much skill that I had built up and knowledge and expertise from all of these different companies, I just wouldn't put up with it anymore. I'd say, no, this is what I'm working. (laughs) And if that's not okay with you, then I guess you're just going to have to hire someone else. And it's not that I was bitter, but it's because I was just tired of being taken advantage of. I was tired of that grind where if you need someone to work this much, then you're just going to need to hire more people or hire someone else to do it. Well, good on you for, and I'm assuming you're getting into your mid twenties now, mid late twenties. Would that be right? Yeah, I think mid to late 20s is when I, things started really to pay off for me in a, as becoming an aircraft maintenance engineer. So you mentioned a few minutes ago about endorsements and you brought it up again. So would this be a good time to describe what that is? Because I have absolutely no idea. Sure. So I'll jump into that right now. So an endorsement is, again, this is we're talking Canada. So it's going to look a little bit different in the United States and everywhere else. But an endorsement is a certification, a training that you need to sign out that specific type. And what the type is, is the helicopter or the engine. So it's separated in two different areas, airframe and engine. So in order to be able to sign out, for me to have signing authority over that aircraft, I need an endorsement on type for airframe to sign out any work on the airframe, as well as a separate engine course to sign out any work that I certify on the engine. So endorsements are critical and the only way you have authority to sign out those specific tasks. So you want to get endorsements right off the bat. They're very expensive. I have tens of thousands of dollars of training on endorsements. One endorsement for an airframe and engine course is about $10,000 Canadian. And times have changed a lot. So before companies would pay for them, they'd put you on the courses, no questions asked. You'd get the training and you'd move on. It's shifted a lot over the last 10 years where companies don't want to pay for endorsements anymore. They want their people and their workers to pay for them, or they'll hold them in these contracts that say, you have to work for us for a minimum of two years because we're giving you this endorsement. But the main takeaway that I want people to understand about endorsements is you want to get endorsements that are the most common aircraft in your industry. So for example, on helicopters, you want a Bell 206 endorsement, you want an A-Star endorsement. And these are different types of helicopters that are the most widely used in Canada, which means that you have the experience, the training and the knowledge to do work on those machines, to sign out those machines, because almost guaranteed every single helicopter company has one or two or three or five of those aircraft. And now that gives you more opportunities to work for these different companies because you have those endorsements. It was a year ago, I interviewed a mechanic and it's the way he worded it. It goes, the learning never stops. If you're going to work at a certain dealership, you've got to understand what those cars are all about. And you're, if I understand everything correctly, that's what you're saying though too. We're, we'll specifically talk about helicopters, but there's an array of frames and helicopter engines and you have to get certified or, well, as you worded, endorsements. You have to understand it. You have to take a course. And I would assume with a course, you're going to take a a test or an exam and you have to pass that to be accredited in that certain specific area. Would that be right? Yeah, exactly. And these courses, they're not very big courses. Typically, an airframe course will run three to five days in a row, nine to five. Same with an engine course, three to five days, depending on the type, depending on the complexity. 
So we're talking for five days for an airframe course, that's $5,000. Five days for an engine course is $5,000, give or take, depending on the type, depending on the engine. But that's how much these courses are. They're very expensive. But once you have them, now that's in your license. That's on your paperwork for life. So you don't need to get endorsed again. That's good for life. In Canada, we're talking. So it's really valuable to get these endorsements early on for those specific types because now you have them forever. With regard to your license, is there anything else that you have to keep your license up to a certain level? Or once you have your license, is, is it just good for your life? So the license is good for your life, I believe. I think there might be an expiry just in terms of when you need to update the information to renew that license. But you do need to do minimum requirements in terms of signing out aircraft. So I can't remember the exact numbers right now, but let's just say, for example, over a 24-month period, you might need to work on that type of aircraft for six months, or you might need to sign out something on that aircraft in the last six months in order to certify it in the future. So there's these different things and experiences that you need to upkeep, but not necessarily like if you're working in the industry full-time or part-time, your license will be good and you can sign out all of those necessary items. I am just really getting to the specifics here. When you say sign out, that means you worked on that aircraft or that engine and you say, I I'm signing out. It it's okay to go. Now it can be flown in the air. Exactly. So what happens when you're an AME is you have signing authority, which means you can sign out the maintenance you did, the tasks you did. So you're not signing out everything on the aircraft. You're not signing out work that other people did or something you didn't touch. You're signing out that specific task. So let's say, for example, I did a 100-hour inspection. I sign out with my signature, as well as you'll get a license number, which you get once you're licensed, with your license number or as well as the company license number that you're working for. And now that item, that task is certified, you're certifying it to be released and it's airworthy so it can fly again. Okay, I just want to talk about this industry a little bit more before we get on to the rest of your career. So if something goes wrong, if an accident happens at some point, they can actually come back to you. So there's a lot of liability here. Is, am I reading this right? There is a ton of liability and documentation is huge and it's for flying, it's for maintenance, it's for even parts, parts coming to you. Everything has to be documented, everything has to be on file and everything has to be certified for an aircraft. So you can't just go to your local Canadian tire or your local Lowe's and buy parts. It's very, very in-depth. And again, that's for safety reasons. If something does happen, everything can be tracked back to the minute, to the hour, to who was flying, to who signed out that task. And this is really important for aviation in general, because that allows them to figure out the problems. If they have a problem with a certain type of aircraft or a certain part, they can go back, they can do those recalls, they can fix things because they have all of the data. And aviation is an industry that's very, very good at this because they're flying in the air. They have to be held to a certain standard, but it's really good that the safety is that high, especially in Canada because of all these things in place. I'm just referring back to the mechanic that I interviewed a year ago. As far as expenses, you definitely mentioned the endorsements. But is there any other expenses? And one expense that's coming to my mind is tools. Do you, as an aircraft maintenance engineer, do you need to buy your own tools or is that supplied by the company itself? 
you need to buy your own tools about 95% of the time. If you're working in somewhere like an overhaul shop that's maybe specifically working on jet engines, let's say, they will provide a lot of the tools in terms of what you need because it's so specialized. But for the other 95% of people, especially in helicopters, working on fixed wing planes, you need to provide all your own tools. And the tools, while they are similar across the industry, there are definitely very specific ones for helicopters, as well as more specific ones for certain types of helicopters, because you actually need to even build and create some specialty tools. So I'm not sure to put an exact number on it and what I have, but I'd say I've spent well over $10,000, $15,000 if I just had to put a number on it on tools. But this is over years. This is accumulating, okay, I need this now because I'm working on this type of engine. So I'll get those then. So it's definitely an investment that you need to put forth into what you're doing for your career. So then when you're also working out in the bush, you're actually having, a, imagine a pickup truck or something like that, that you're actually carting your tools way out there. So typically when I worked in the field, there was no cars even where we were because we were flown up into the mountains in tent camps. So we're talking very, very remote. Sometimes you might be at a place where there are pickup trucks or even side-by-sides that get long-lined in or, or quads or ATVs. But for the most part, you're flowing in, at least to the places I was. So you basically have, I'd have a Pelican travel case, which had all my tools as well as like another side case. And it's very, very broken down to the necessities of what I need. I'd carry about anywhere between like 50 and 75 pounds of tools and then all of that was very compact where I could pull it out. I could do everything I needed. And then if there was anything special that came up, any special inspections or things that were out of the ordinary that I needed to fix or change, those tools would be flowing into me, those specialty tools, so I could perform that task. Okay, so you've done eight years in this. You're, you're eight years into your career. You've definitely moved up. And you're doing a variety of work. You mentioned that you're beginning to push back on some companies and you're not saying yes to everything. So what's going on in your head at this time or what's happening with you at this time? So pretty much at this time, I'm about eight years into my career and mind you, I haven't been flying. So I flew a couple of years here and there at the beginning. Once I got into maintenance, just on and off, I was flying in Alberta for a little bit. Just wanted to touch on that. But then maintenance started really taking off for me. So the experience I was getting was all in maintenance. And I didn't want to go back to flying because I basically would have, again, had to start from the bottom, so to speak. And I had already built up my career to a level where I didn't want to do that. So I started to make a lot more money. I started to kind of gain that experience and started not to be laid off over and over and over again, like I was early in my career. But about eight years into it, I had a lot of endorsements. I had a lot of experience. I worked for at least eight to nine different companies all over BC and Alberta. And I started to kind of get my wits around me that I'm not going to be taken advantage of anymore. I'm not going to just say yes, because that's the, the norm in this industry and the norm of what everyone else is doing. I'm going to actually value myself and what I'm doing and my expertise and start charging more money and start saying and sticking more to a schedule as far as what I want to do. So that was really important for me and what I was doing. I started to make, I think, around the eight-year mark, anywhere between like seventy-five and 90000 a year. 
So I was working probably a lot of hours at this time still and not quite into a full schedule, so to speak. But then from eight years to about 13 years or 12 years, kind of the peak of what I was earning and the best schedule I had is I started making a hundred plus thousand. And then my schedule started to go to two weeks on and two weeks off. So that was by far the best schedule I've ever had. I ran with that schedule for, I think, three years, three and a half years straight. Two weeks, I'd fly away. I'd go work for two weeks solid, about 15 days on, 13 days off. I'd come home. I'm making 120000 a year. I'm doing great. I'm, I'm, I've kind of felt like I made it in terms of what I'm doing. And all of this training, all of these hardships, all of these failures finally start to feel like they've paid off for me, but it took over a decade. It's interesting you bring that up. Um, 13 years to get to the point where you've got a decent schedule, you're getting good pay. And let's just emphasize the decent schedule when you actually said it's two weeks on, two weeks off. Because it happens so often. People go, oh yeah, I'll be a helicopter pilot or I'll be a maintenance engineer. I'll be two weeks on, two weeks off. But what people tend to not look into is there's... 13 year gap there where you, <laughs> you weren't working two weeks on, you weren't working two weeks off. You're actually working pretty steadily two to three months out in the bush, not seeing family, not seeing anybody except your coworkers. So there's a lot of, a lot of dirty work you sort of had to do. So before we get into your next phase of your career, looking back on this, is there anybody who's interested in this line of work? What would you like to pass on to them? I would like to pass on that you need to persevere. You need to be resilient because aviation is an industry not for the faint of heart. And what I mean by that is you're going to get laid off. You're going to get fired. You're going to lose your job. That's the nature of the business. It is competitive. You need to perform. You need to show up and you need to put in the time early on because if you're not going to do that, you will not kind of make the money I'm talking. You will not get the schedule. And it's funny because if there's people on here that have this career, they might be thinking that the career I've had is still a pipe dream because some people are still working three weeks on and five days off and they're in the grind fully with a ton of experience. But I just stopped accepting that and I raised my rates and I raised my standard and I ended up getting what I wanted over time. But I had to start saying no. I had to really start limiting what I would do in that job because I got to that level. So really keep your head up, stay focused and know that you're going to go through these hard times. Okay, fair enough. But you're 13 years into it and you're working two weeks on, two weeks off. You said you're making six digits for sure, well over $100,000. You're liking things. Obviously, you're liking life. I mean, you indicated to me or to the audience a few minutes ago that all the work you've put in it's finally paying off. You have abs. I would say you wouldn't have any absolutely no ambition, but you just don't want to take a step back to go back into flying. So what's going on with your life right now? Once again, I want to say thanks to Chris for that honest story. Some of the key lessons learned are the following. When something is not working out, as in Chris's case, sometimes we just need to take a time out and regroup. This means we stop what we are doing to gain another perspective. Completely stop what we're doing is the key. In addition, this does take humility regardless of whether we are moving in back with our parents or not. Admitting that something is not working out is the first step to finding something better. 
There was a good discussion about how Chris found and researched the aircraft maintenance engineering program that he took. Some key points are technical programs from technical schools such as this are very specific. So it is important to understand what a person is getting themselves into. Because Chris did his homework, he was committed to the program, and he did well because of this. Mixing this with his easygoing, friendly personality that he has, he got his first lead on his job in this industry. The key lessons here is the point of being committed will help you excel, as a person will learn whatever it is a person wants to learn, as long as you're committed. In addition, it never hurts to be a nice, kind, and genuine person, as in Chris's case, it really helped him out a lot. It is clear as his story continues, his career and his life did turn around. There are tips on negotiating, examples of how learning never stops, lessons on perseverance as well. But above all, he wanted more, leading to the next episode where Chris talks about his inner calling and following that. So please tune in for the next episode also for other interviews and blogs. Once again, please visit the Career Guy website, www.thecareerguy.ca. And thanks for listening.